I'm Nevin, and this is Cooking Up a Podcast. Each week, I'm writing some recipes, talking to people about food and cooking, going on some adventures, and making some videos. You can find it all at nevintaylorcooks.com. This week, I'm talking with the James Beard award-winning author and writer, Rowan Jacobson. Welcome to episode 12. This week, I sit down and talk with Rowan Jacobson. He's a James Beard award-winning author. He has stuff that's been published everywhere. Um, Outside Magazine, Harper's, Food and Wine Magazine, Lucky Peach, Scientific American, Vice, Mother Jones, Yankee. He's frequently featured in the best food writing um, books that come out every single year. Um, Yeah, his stuff is just rad. He writes about a lot of different stuff. Usually the connection is food, but it ends up making some deeper environmental and connections with what consuming food means on a a larger scale. In his feature writing, which has been published in all those magazines I mentioned before, he has a really diverse scope of the things that he he can provide connectivity and a deeper look at. He's he's done profiles on uh, dark chocolate, rhino poachers, uh, plant-based burgers, uh, lost apples, making gumbo after the BP oil spill, DNA sequencing, honey, and the collapse of bees, and making feral cider. And yeah, so he's he's just been he writes about a whole bunch of diverse topics, all connected through food and the environment somehow. And he's written one, two, three, four, five, six, seven books. He's written in depth about oysters in his first book, The Geography of Oysters, which he won a James Beard Award for. He's written about the collapse of the honeybee in a fruitless fall, um, apples of uncommon character, which explores uh, reviving and documenting some uncommon apple varieties in New England. He wrote about the aftermath of the BP oil spill and shadows of the Gulf, which was super rad. And how I first got introduced with him to him was um, at a speech that he gave or a lecture that he gave at Harvard about um, uncommon apples history in New England, mostly, um, and kind of the effect that the apples have had. It was a really great speech. He had this, uh, he tells a story in the interview too, but he just had this really beautiful way of having a grasp on the historical context and telling a narrative and a story about all of that stuff without it getting too scientific or boring or like losing anybody. He it, the same thing with his writing, even his feature writing, like he, he integrates connecting with people through, you know, little bits of comedy or, you know, connecting in a real way with people so that it's not dry. It's just, he's just a really good writer, storyteller, um, really good at connecting with people and finding a lot of stuff, um, that people find interesting in the, in connecting with the natural world around us, which is just really amazing and speaks to his skill as a very gifted and talented writer, um, and storyteller. 
So I also, I ended up connecting with him that night and then set up this interview. Um, but he's in Boston because he was awarded a night, uh, science journalism fellowship at MIT. Um, because of some of his most recent work, like his last published article in Outside Magazine was about biohacking and he drinks beer made from jellyfish DNA and all sorts of crazy stuff like that. But we get into it at the end of the interview, but he's exploring the environmental, economic and evolutionary impact of synthetic biology in in the world around us and ways that it's being applied today into some interesting stuff. So we get into that at the end of the interview. Um his work connecting with food has kind of like led all the way down to this kind of like super modern, uh, DNA sequencing, uh, work, which applies to food and what's happening in the world around us right now and, and how we choose to engage with it. Um, let's get into it. When this comes out, I'll be traveling in Israel um, so if you want to follow along with my journey in Israel, I'm going to be sharing some pictures and stuff like that. Follow me on Instagram at Nevin Taylor. I'm going to be posting pictures. I'm bringing all of this stuff with me to record hopefully a couple of interviews while I'm there. Um, and all that stuff will get published here. So tons of cool stuff going on to stay tuned into. Yeah. So this is me and Rowan Jacobson talking about a lot of different themes in his book, covering uh, kind of his career as a writer and how he got started all the way up to some of the stuff that he's working on right now. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation. I learned a ton. He gives me some advice on storytelling and writing as I continue on this crazy journey of talking to people and trying to write and make videos and da -da 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 -da. really inspiring stuff. So let's get into it. Here's me and Rowan Jacobson. Jacobson. I live in Vermont, but I'm down here in Boston for the year at MIT. And I'm a longtime food and adventure writer, I guess I'd say. And now a science writer. Food, science, and adventure. Yeah, those seem to be the big three. Pretty awesome. Other stuff too, you know, sustainability. Yeah. How did you first get into writing professionally? Did you go to school for um, writing? And I did actually, um, but in, I went to school for fiction. So I, I got my, you know, my undergrad degree was in just literature, right. English American literature. Um, but then I went immediately went and got my MFA in fiction. Like by the time I graduated, I'd lost interest in fiction and just wanted to do nonfiction. So then I got a, um, a job as a book editor, like straight out of grad school. I got a job as a book editor up in Vermont for a little like new age publisher, super kooky new age publisher, and did that for a few years. Worked as a book editor. Then began ghostwriting books for that publisher, um, and then went freelance first as a ghostwriter, and then I started doing stuff under my own name. A lot of the stuff that I've seen from you is like you know outside magazine and all those sorts of things like feature writing, right? Yeah, sort of things. Yeah, but that came actually a little later. That came after the book. The books I did. I've had a very non-traditional like yeah. arc, yeah, <laughs> almost like a reverse arc, because it was because I knew the book world from being an editor. So then. Um, when I went freelance, I got this idea 
for this oyster book, I was getting really into oysters and there was no, nothing out there that was like a guide um, that would be like a wine guide type book for oysters. Um, so I wanted to do it and I knew that in all nonfiction books are sold on proposal. Like you don't have to do the whole book. Fiction, you got to write the whole damn thing first and before you know whether anyone will buy it. So you got to take a hell of a flyer. Nonfiction, you just take a few weeks to put together a proposal of what the book will be, like a 20 or 30 page document that'll have like the table contents and sort of like an annotated, like step-by-step what the book will be about, a little two-page overview, sample chapter, and then you find an agent and you shop that around, and if you get a deal with the publisher, then you have to write it. But so, I knew how that whole world worked, so I just put together a proposal um, for an oyster book, sold it to a publisher, and then did that first book, and then, and then after that book came out, magazines started coming to me and be like, hey, you're that oyster guy. Will you do a magazine piece for us about oysters? So I got pulled into magazine world. I, in my head, I had it worked out the exact opposite of that. Wh- which would be the normal way. Okay. You kind of like claw your way up from yeah. like newspaper writing to magazine writing to, and books are supposed to be like the pinnacle. You know, the yeah. pinnacle. Cool. Um, so I like started with books and then went down to magazines and my, eventually like a local newsletter is my goal. You know? <laughs> I guess we could t- start with the oysters, which was your first book. So, um, living in Vermont, you grew up in Vermont. What, how did you get wrapped into and in becoming the like oyster guy that magazines are hitting up to, to write articles about. So I grew up in Vermont. When I was a little kid, I grew up in Vermont, but then my whole family moved to Florida. My parents got sick of winter, basically. So from like ages, age 11 through college, I was in Florida. And that was definitely my oyster, uh, early oyster years. Like my dad was always into them. He, he'd grown up in Baltimore, so he was used to Chesapeake oysters. And like in the 1980s in Florida, there were just like cheap, so super skanky beach bars everywhere selling incredibly cheap oysters or sometimes at happy hour giving away free oysters right like this was the the, the day when gulf coast oysters and Apalachicola oysters were insanely cheap so my dad couldn't believe that you could just like pop into one of these places order one drink and eat all these oysters either for free or for like 10 cents a piece so we would the family would like go to the beach on for the day and then stop off at one of these places for a happy hour you know with like the three little kids so anyway i started eating oysters with him then you know we found out that there were actually oysters growing there um in the estuaries so we harvested a few of those um but that was my that was my oyster awakening yeah and then through literature later on just kept going deeper into storytelling about the oysters and all that and history yeah yeah and it was that so as as um an adult i got really interested in them when i started learning there are all these different varieties and like didn't know what the difference was between say an apalachicola and a blue point but people clearly cared a lot, um, and there was really no information out there about them at that time. So I started sort of compiling. East Coast, West Coast, what are your feelings? Oysters, oyster stuff. You know, um, so what I have found is that people tend to um, bond strongly with whatever oyster was their first oyster, because it's kind of an intense experience. So. Um, you get sort of like a lot of patriotic <laughs> oyster yeah. vibes out there because it's funny. So most people, I'm out here on the East Coast. Most people are more familiar with the East Coast oyster. Strongly feel that it is the better oyster, and like, how could anyone think otherwise? But then you you go to the West Coast, like Washington State, people who grew up with that oyster, 
and they find it bizarre that that we like our East Coast oyster. But to me, the East Coast oyster is really the like the most amazing of all oysters. And the thing is, people don't realize like we think it's really common because this is where it grows, but it doesn't grow anywhere else except the East Coast of uh, North America. Whereas the Pacific oyster, that is the industry in the West Coast. Is worldwide. It's what they grow everywhere. Yeah, Japan, um, Japan, America, Australia, yeah. France. Um, it's like seventy-five or eighty percent of the industry worldwide is that oyster. So what we have is like it's like the equivalent of some rare thing that you can only find in that local place. Right. So the the variety on the West Coast being like the deeper cups, sweeter, smaller variety like traditionally um, or not smaller unless you make it that way yeah, like harvest it. yeah it definitely it gets um it gets a deep cup well if you make it like again they have to kind of force it to do that yeah like the pacific oyster if you let it run wild it will it, it grows really fast that's the reason it it dominates the industry is it's like a weed it can it's like corn it does well anywhere and so um it gets it'll get huge um, in just a few years actually um, so the problem is and if, and if you give it too much space it'll just get long and it'll and it will never develop that deep cup um, and yeah the flavor is kind of like sweeter and more cucumbery a little more funky East Coast is more like straight-up brine yeah. stock yeah. Um, so what they like lately what happens on the West Coast is they use some um, growing techniques to try to get it to cup up and to keep it smaller. Uh, like if you've ever had a Shigoku or, um, yeah. or a Kushi, um, a lot of the ones with those Japanese names, yeah. they're tumbling them throughout their lives to keep chipping off that growing edge so they won't get long. Yeah, so they'll go deep. So East Coast is more of a unique to a place, I guess, like the more unique oyster for sure. It is, because it doesn't do well anywhere else besides east coast and gulf coast is the same oyster um and so no one else grows it anywhere it's yeah it's like a the truffle of uh the east coast or something yeah you know? the east coast oyster is definitely a thing and definitely a thing that people identify with very strongly for sure that there's yeah there's no other there's no other there's nothing else like it yeah. it's so it's quite different than the other oysters and it's um yeah, it's so closely, like, it's woven into the fabric of this place, especially here in New England, Gulf Coast, obviously. It's just Chesapeake, for sure. It's just, like, yeah, it is, a, like, a part of the identity. I know that you've written about adventure stuff and sustainability, that sort of stuff. Do the, Does that kind of, like, thread closely with your work with oysters and maintaining oceans and habitats and all sorts of stuff like that um purifying the water and um, yeah yeah for sure that's a good question um yeah for, I, it definitely does it's like it's not just um and that's for me the, the interest in any food is not just purely flavor on the plate but it's um where it comes from um you know what the ways that it connects us to the world food I think that's why I started in food writing is, is it's such a, everybody's got a built an interest in food, right? Um, but it's all these plants and animals that are connected to the earth in some way. So if you're going to understand food, it, it leads you right back to understanding place and sustainability and all that. Yeah. The way that we interact with the world for sure. Um, 
And that also led you to write the, I can't remember the name, Shadows of the Gulf. Shadows of, uh, yeah, that, um, so when the BP oil spill happened, Outside Magazine asked me to go um, cover that story. Yeah. Uh, and we wanted to do it, like, obviously, the entire media world was descending on, on the Gulf Coast right then. So we kind of wanted to do something different. Mm-hmm. So I said, what about if we did... Um, covered the story without using any fossil fuels. So get a sailboat and like do like this ridiculous like 19th century <laughs> style reporting gig. Awesome. So they like that a lot. So I found a guy uh, in Mobile, Alabama who had a sailboat who's, who wanted to go out and um, pulled together a few guys who, who lived around there who had strong opinions. Um, one of them is, was like the real life Forrest Gump, the guy that the that Forrest Gump was based on. Wow. Uh, who's a character. They're all characters. But so, yeah, we did, we, we took the sailboat out to like look for oil and, and write about it. Um, so I did that story. And, um, but I got so much information while, uh, while working on that story that I, I thought this actually should probably be a book. Because mm-hmm. I actually thought the, um, it turned out like the Gulf Coast, a lot of us who, who live in the Northeast are, or the West Coast sort of have this attitude about the Gulf Coast, like it's the Redneck Riviera. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was kind of blown away by by like how much incredible like natural beauty there was down there, and how many really healthy ecosystems are down there, and important ones. Yeah. Um, and that's not our, our impression is that it's all like sort of like the oil industry, yeah, and it's all toxic down there. And there are spots like that for sure, but. Um, I, I kind of thought like maybe the BP spell could be a way because everyone was interested in that it would be a way to get people interested in that place yeah. and learn about it in a, in a deeper way yeah but I was wrong as it turned out like people didn't want to know about that place that oh, deep oh, that, no. that was like my worst selling book <laughs> oh, um, no. like it got good reviews um I kind of did what I wanted to do in the book, but turns out people don't read books about the Gulf Coast. <laughs> and you don't sell many books in the Gulf Coast. Yeah. I've never been, you know, that's definitely like a landscape uh, that I've never seen. Yeah, I've never been in it before. I've never traveled there. Or, you know, I definitely want to and hope to someday. There's like a whole culturally relevant, especially through like a food lens is like that's probably that's some of the deepest stuff totally you know, in america totally. for sure it is like like if you're looking for places that where the food traditions still grew straight out of the landscape like the way you see in france and other places um that's, that's it that's yeah. for the u.s that's probably the best one yeah what are some things that some maybe points that stuck out on that trip like the sailboat and meeting real life forest gump and <laughs> anything happen um that particularly struck strikes uh, in your memory. Yeah, you, the thing that I took away, which I wrote about in the book, is um, like everyone's like, "Oh my God, the uh, you know the oil is gonna ru- is the thing that's gonna ruin this place," and it's really it's not the oil. The, the oil did very little damage to that coast, like shockingly little. The sort of like us in the sort of like the liberal media world wanted almost like this just desserts thing to be like, see, um, and, and there were a few pelicans that got covered in oil and those same pelicans were like on the cover of every newspaper for days. Like they had hundreds of reporters surrounding them like taking photos of them. Meanwhile, there were hundreds of miles of, of coastline that were untouched, that were in perfect shape. So like we had this image 
and you know we like blame the oil for ruining the coast and indirectly it is the oil that's ruining the coast but not because of that but because of all the canals like if you look at the the um like a google satellite image of the louisiana coast and you zoom down a little it starts to look it's really weird it almost looks like like Chinese characters or something like ideograms there's all these like lines just like carved out of the marshes there which are all canals for the oil industry to get up through the marsh so they don't have to take like the circuitous uh, Mississippi River path all those canals that salt water intrude way high into the marsh um, and then the, the, it gets too salty and it kills the marsh grasses which collapse which allows the water to keep going higher and higher and the other thing is um, the Mississippi River for thousands of years would normally just it would flood every year and it would like move around it was one of these rivers that when it got to its delta it would just spread out into a bunch of little fingers sort of and um, you know it's really muddy in Mississippi so it would be spreading that sediment around and building the marshes constantly we didn't like all that flooding so we levied the whole river so now all of that gets shot way out into the Gulf so the marshes aren't getting built up anymore Um, so they're actually subsiding because basically that whole coast is nothing but like 10,000 years of mud slowly condensing, right? Like New Orleans is just built on miles of mud. Um, And it it continues to compact a little bit. Equivalent um, sea line keeps getting higher. And everyone blames um, climate change for for the, the rising seas down there. But it's actually that the land is sinking. So the seas are, it seemed like they're rising, and a tiny bit of it is because of global warming, but most of it is just because we, we fucked up the Mississippi River, and uh, now the whole coast is just sinking. Yeah, through under the, the levees and the canals. and Yeah, yeah. Um, we're not giving the coast the mud that it depended on. Right. So, um, meanwhile, all, that, all those nutrients that we shoot out into the Gulf Coast cause this massive uh, dead zone. Right. Um, because the algae blooms so it's the exact same nutrients that would be doing all the good on land we shoot them into the water and they screw everything up so it's just like a total we totally messed up the system and it was this system that produced incredibly abundant seafood and 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 made these healthy marshes that are like core flyways for all the birds that migrate up from south america um so yeah it's like a classic example of like systems thinking or systems non-thinking right not um necessarily playing out cause and effect right long enough right right we couldn't we didn't know we couldn't like pull back enough to see it all the there's definitely renaissance stuff that's happening right now for sure revival or what what however you want to label it but definitely more um attention being paid to to apples historically and all that sort of stuff went to your talk the other night at harvard which was so awesome and the glass apples above and walking through and trying the cider was just like such an awesome night for sure yeah, I like the way it all came together there. Aren't those glass apples amazing? So cool. I took some pictures of it. Hopefully, I haven't really looked at them yet, but um, hopefully it's hard, it's hard to get. I've, I've taken the, a bunch of shots of them. The glass and the, And yeah. they've got the light really low to, yeah. so they don't mess up the color on them yeah. over time. So it's hard to get a good shot of them. Yeah, so I guess we can just start in on some apple stuff. What I've, I think I read something about maybe the beginning of your journey in apples from some apple trees in your backyard. Yeah, so I bought, um, bought a farmhouse in Vermont 
Vermont like 15 years ago. And as, as is typical for old Vermont farmhouses or old farmhouses throughout New England, came with a bunch of gnarled apple trees in the in the back field. Apples, apples um, they're not native to uh, North America. They're from Kazakhstan. But they... Uh, they came with the colonists, and apples love New England, so they immediately call it like you know they they were planted on every farm, but the apple is actually one of our only food crops that doesn't need us. Like if you think about everything else that we've adapted to grow, all the stuff we've domesticated, um, and not just crops, animals too, like sheep, corn, whatever, it doesn't it doesn't go wild, right? It, like it can't hack it in the environment. The depends apple, on human. Depends yeah. on human intervention they're totally dependent on us now to survive chickens even with us chickens like die constantly like everything kills a chicken um nothing kills an apple tree um they are they're really they haven't evolved they're still the same wild creatures they were um from kazakhstan and they love new england so they just go wild constantly so like every dirt road in new england is lined with um, wild apple trees that just started as some like core that some kid chucked out of a window or something. Um, so they're everywhere. Um, and the ones in the fields are e- e- either planted or they're wild. So uh, yeah, so I had uh, all these apple trees that were, um, that did not look like the, you know, three varieties of apples I was familiar with in, uh, in st- the st- supermarkets of my youth. They were all kinds of crazy colors and flavors. And, and that's something, you, you see it all, all over New England, like the farmer's markets now have all these old heirloom varieties that there's a new interest in. Every bar in Boston has at least one cider on the list and sometimes more, you know? I really liked in your speech, you had such a nice uh, grasp on telling the story through the historical lens and kind of just like, you moved really well through through telling these stories, especially like the Revolutionary War times and all that stuff was just really engaging and and, and pretty awesome. So um, maybe if you want to touch on that, I loved the story about the Revolutionary War may have not even happened, yeah, you know, um, due to the apple. Yeah, some of these early apples, like when you, you look back through the books, they um they were like significant players in uh, sort of like the establishing of the colonies. Like when you had a good apple appear in an area, people like would pay attention to it and take cuttings of that tree to grow more of them. So you had certain varieties of apples that became closely identified with an area. And one of them in here in Boston was the Roxbury Russet, which is the oldest variety of apple that we now have. To, that was born in the United States, even before the United States was the United States. The first Roxbury Russet came from actually just just up the road here, um, probably started in Boston Common as an apple that a seed was taken from and planted in Roxbury. And um, the, the genetics of that seed happened to produce a, an apple that was a russet. It, it had that sort of brown sandpapery skin. And russet apples tend to have the most interesting complex uh, flavor of, of any apples. So people got into this apple. First, there's this family called the Warren family that created, planted these orchards in Roxbury of what first were called Warren russet apples and then later were called Roxbury russet apples. 
they were all through Roxbury, which back in the Revolutionary War days was the sort of only way in and out of Boston before the Back Bay and all these other areas of Boston had been filled in. There were no bridges. Boston was a peninsula connected to the mainland through this little skinny neck of land that went into Roxbury. One of the members of the Warren family was this guy named Joseph Warren III, who was one of the, the, the big revolutionary guys. His dad, Joseph Warren II, was a big doctor in the area and uh, had these Roxbury russet orchards. Roxbury russet is a very late ripening variety. It, it comes ripe in, like you basically you can hold it on the tree into November and that's when it starts to get good. Before then, it's, it's too sour. So uh, Joseph Warren II was harvesting his apples in like 1755. Late, late fall, it was icy, he slipped off his ladder, fell on his head, broke his neck and died. Joseph Warren III was just a kid at the time and ended up um, sort of bonding with Sam Adams as his father figure. Sam Adams was like the most aggressive of the revolutionary guys here in Boston. And uh, he, he sort of like pulled this young Joseph Warren III into the revolutionary cause. Joseph Warren ends up becoming the head of the Provincial Congress here in Massachusetts, has spies in Boston who are spying on the British when the British have taken control of the city just before the Revolutionary War. He's the one who learns that the British are sending out forces to seize all the weapons that the, um, the rebels have amassed and conquered in Lexington and to arrest Sam Adams and John Hancock, who are the leaders of the revolution, who are out scheming in Lexington. So he's the one who finds, who finds out that the British are sending the troops, gets Paul Revere to do his famous ride to warn Sam Adams and John Hancock that the British are coming and to warn um, the militias out there. So he does, gets out there before the British, the militias are ready, they meet the British army, Battle of Concord and Lexington, first, first shots fired in the American Revolution. They rout the British, chase them back into Boston. The British are holed up in Boston. Um, and, and what keeps them in Boston partly is these riflemen, the, these um, colonial riflemen who are camped out in the Warren Roxbury Russet orchards in Roxbury and firing away at any British who try to come out of Boston through that little neck of land. So um, the, the, those Roxbury Russet orchards basically protect the American riflemen from the, give them cover and help them hold the British down in Boston. Eventually the British retreat and uh, the Revolutionary War goes the way of the, of the rebels. But I have this idea that um, basically you can, you can thank Roxbury Russet for some of the, those uh, occurrences because say it had not, not only for having the orchards there that protected the American troops, but if Roxbury Russet hadn't been such a late ripening variety, Joseph Warren II probably would have harvested his apples. He wouldn't have been working so late in the year, would have harvested his apples without falling off his ladder and dying and leaving his son, Joseph Warren III, to bond with Sam Adams. And maybe Joseph Warren III then doesn't light quite the fire under Paul Revere's ass to get him out on the road to go save his, this father figure of his. Maybe the British get out there and the militia isn't ready for them and the British win those early battles and never do get bottled up in Boston and the whole thing could have gone the other way. So, yeah, so Roxbury Russet, in a way, helped, helped create the country we have today. <laughs> I love that story so much. That's so, that's an inter interesting perspective, I think, that... Yeah, it was fun to tell that in Boston, too. Um, but yeah, so the, the bigger, the upshot is, like, 
these early apples sort of had a lot of person. People recognized the personality of them and sort of like thought of them as more distinct than we tend to do today. You know, are your apples on your property eating? You make cider, um, like eating apples. Do you store apples, or what's your relationship with apples in Vermont? Like, yeah, um, all of the above, really. Uh, there's so many different ones. Some some wild, some cultivated. So like I've got a macau tree that's awesome for for eating. I've got this one tree that nobody knows what it is. I've, I've tried to get a couple apple experts to idea it. They can't figure it out. It's incredibly delicious. It's fall and prolific. The fruit falls early, like early September, even and last days of August. It's great. So. I, um, we eat that apple, but it's um, it's a little gnarly. So a lot of it goes to cider now. Like you pick out the best ones for either fresh eating um, or pie sauce, whatever. But then it, it makes a great early cider, which people people have, think that you can't make a good early cider. That you, like the experts, the, the pros often say you got you got to wait for the later apples to make good cider. And that I've found that to not be the case. I think there's a lot of myths still about cider making that are gonna get shaken out now that more people are doing it. How do you, so you make your own cider? How? Yeah, I've got one of those like 100 year old presses. Like oh here. nice, of your own. Yeah. Awesome. Um, how, so you're pretty experienced then. You've been making it for years. I started, yeah, I've been making it. First, there's a guy, um, there's a guy in my town named Terry Bradshaw, actually. Same, not, not the quarterback, Terry Bradshaw, slash commentator, Terry Bradshaw. Um, but he is the like Apple extension expert for University of Vermont. Okay. So he's always, he's like helping everyone with their orchards. So he started making cider, his own cider, like 30 years ago or whatever. And then when I moved to that town about 15 years ago, uh, I started getting some of his, he'll just like press juice from the interesting apples that he would collect all over and then sell you the fresh juice that so you would bring your carboy over, fill it up with his juice. And then um, I would, I've got like an old like flagstone basement. So it was perfect to ferment the cider over the winter. Yeah. So I started doing it with his juice. Then I got my own press. Then I would just start bring him my apples and add my apples to the mix of apples that he was doing, which was somewhat satisfying, but I never got exactly my apples back. And I was kind of curious like to do like more specific ciders, um, like, like more single variety stuff. Um, so then I bought a, like an old press from a guy who was retiring um, and started doing my own. So now, yeah, I, I do some just from my own property, some from other like wild trees along the roads. Cause the thing is, a lot of these apple trees are just hanging right on these dirt roads. So you get an old pickup truck and you can literally just either park under the tree and shake it or you can back into the tree <laughs> and fill the bed yeah. with apples. Yeah. So it's pretty convenient. Grab like my son and some of his friends for the free labor and Yeah. Go pick some apples and then so how much are you making ish? It really it depends on season and where I am. Um like apples, they have this weird biennial uh, nature. Like they'll have a huge year and then almost nothing. And sometimes like that pendulum swing can get really strong. And right now it's really strong. So uh, last year was hu a huge year. There were just like, there was so much fruit just like on the roadsides all over Vermont and everywhere else in New England, it was crazy. Um, so this year will probably be a light year. But so yeah, we um, I don't know we made like 150 gallons last year. So wow. my my whole basement is full of like carboys that just stopped bubble. What's you don't add anything? You go. Yeah. 
So I used to do, I used to add like commercial yeast, right. uh, like a cider yeast or, a, or like a champagne yeast. Okay. All the experts told me I should do that because otherwise I'd get funky flavors. And then there were like a couple batches that I never got around to adding yeast to and they came out better. So I'm like, hmm, this is again, I think one of those myths that's out there. I definitely, I had one early batch that was undrinkable. It, it smelled like band-aids. It was really weird. So that that was back when that, that helped establish this idea in my head that you do need to add yeast. But for the past, I haven't used any commercial yeast in like five or six years. And all my cider comes out good. Yeah. So I really think, I think it kind of goes back to some of like the old like European ideas about um, natural winemaking. Basically, once you've had enough batches, and if you're not cleaning too carefully, that you get basically some whatever local yeast varieties get established in your area, uh, like your basement area or whatever it is, they'll kind of just take charge for you. Yeah. So the so I just try not to mess with whatever. Future <laughs> Yeah. Um, that you know, a deeper thing to me, like an interesting thing, starting to get involved with a lot of these more. Um, deeper running food tradition type things and then looking towards other cultures like Spain and in the Basque country one thing that has kind of stuck out to me and that I like I'm envious of that um you know the cider house where it's like a, the community gathering place and they're you know drinking little bits coming out of the yeah. of the thing and and it's there's cheese on the table and there's just this like cultural collection that's been happening for a really long time yeah for sure like somehow new england because new england was established so early and um you know it's new england has held on to its traditions and like sort of vestiges of those older european style um farming and food making traditions in a way that the other parts of the country didn't um yeah, and the reasons, who knows the reasons? It's really interesting. Um, I get asked about that. Like, you know, in the Midwest, it kind of all got lost. Like, it, it's all, really all, it all got converted to large-scale industrial agriculture. Um, partly, I think it's just literally the, the land, the lay of the land. Like, the Midwest is great, like, best soil in the world. Um, you don't have all these rocky hills. So you can you can do it's really profitable to do large scale agriculture there. It does not work in New England. New England's just a pain in the ass for farming. It's so rocky. It's all hilly. You can't do that. It, it's not. It hasn't lent itself to like big machine style farming, um, and that's maybe been a blessing in disguise in a lot of ways. And you also had um, like small towns, like these really well and like established ensconced small towns and small populations um, that have been better at resisting like the, the corporate forces that have sort of like eviscerated small towns elsewhere. Partly we just didn't have enough, like a lot of New England doesn't have enough population to make it remotely appealing to the big corporations, like, you know, the Walmarts of the world to come in. So you still got a lot of like farmsteads and um, and tradition out there. Yeah. So maybe one last topic of stuff that you've done in the past or worked on in the past, and then we can get into some stuff that you're doing now. Um, the honeybees and the collapse of the honeybee population. Um, 
your journey with the honeybees and then maybe uh, post your book coming out if things have maybe evolved or changed or um, yeah I think they have they have evolved a little bit or our, our understanding has evolved at least so like yeah the, the short short version is um, beekeeping has always been um, really key to agriculture um, in the US uh, kind of for some of the reasons we're talking about as industrial scale agriculture came in and wiped out all the natural areas that would have had wild pollinators in them nearby to fields like in in new england a lot of pollination still happens from wild areas because you need most most of our um food crops need pollinators to come um cross pollinate fertilize the the plants the flowers so that seeds and fruit will grow but um, if if you've got basically just like a gigantic cornfield, there's nothing wild living anywhere nearby that can serve that pollination function. Or like if you've got like a gigantic apple orchard, like the style they do in Washington State, or a gigantic almond orchard like California has, you've got nothing living in there that can take handle that pollination, and every single flower needs to be pollinated to produce fruit. So. Traditionally, they bring in uh, beehives, like two million beehives, which is pretty much every beehive that's left in the U.S. will descend on those almond orchards in California in February for almond bloom. And so literally all the beehives are loaded onto the back of tractor trailer trucks driven to the almond orchards and unloaded and like, you know, separated out through the through the orchards. And the uh, the beekeepers get paid like, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks a hive to do that. So it's actually a bigger source of income for them than honey by far. And then they'll go to the next crop. They'll just follow the bloom around the country, pollinating different crops, um, because we've lost our natural pollination. So we've got this like little bit of like fertility, this like mobile fertility unit that has to travel around the country, making sure everything can reproduce, which is crazy. Yeah, um, crazy, crazy. And it, the crazy, just one. The craziest thing to think about for me when I first started hearing about all this stuff was like literally, the bees. There is nothing else around the bees would die like cuz there is nothing else that flowers or produces a flower in these area for a very very broad like it's just mind blowing like, right and that's the other part of it is the beekeepers need those blooms um, from agriculture because they're it's hard to find wild areas for your bees so it's crazy on both sides and the system started to go down um, in around like 2008 no, 2007, I think it was really when. Um, just a bee started to die off at really high rates, and it endangered a lot of that pollination. Um, and we still haven't figured out exactly why, but um, yeah, like 30 to 40, 40% of the beehives in the country died that first winter. And it, it's continued since then. Even like in a normal year back in the day, 10 to 15% of hives would die. Bees, winter is always tough on bees. It's just part of their normal uh, cycle. Um, but it's been 30 to 40% every year since 2006, 2007. It's gotten a little better the past couple of years. It's down to more like 25%. So still higher than it used to be. And there's still, there's never been one thing that's that has, there's no smoking gun pesticides probably a factor there's these mites that have been introduced that are found in every beehive now that really weaken the bees a lot 
and there are probably there are probably new viruses that have shown up that we don't even know about yet. So there's a lot of things that that make it rough on bees. And the situation seems to just be continuing to evolve since the since kind of like you know the book came out and things were like pretty grim i would say for the future so yeah basically it's kind of it's stabilized a little bit like like i said they'll lose 25 percent of the hives each winter but they can as long as prices are high enough like what they get paid for pollination they can make that work like the bees die back and then in the spring you make they start to make replicate they make more colonies so then they get the numbers up high enough so there's basically just enough hives out there to handle all the pollination duties prices have gone up before uh, because of that um so you know ultimately we end up paying more for food because the system is so sort of on edge but back the people who back in the day kind of thought we were going to find one thing that was causing the bee die-offs um don't think that anymore like most of the experts the entomologists think that it's just all this stuff like pesticides new viruses stress on the bees because of the lifestyle mites mites are probably the number one it's all of that stuff yeah yeah the mites are found in every they're called varroa mites they're in every colony and they're really hard to treat because how do you kill one bug without killing the good bug so yeah um crazy stuff really crazy stuff like the industrial scale agriculture stuff but there's also seems like there's a lot more people um locally maybe who are having hives with a more diverse uh offering for the bees exactly and again new england's a pretty good example for that like there's enough backyard beekeepers in new england and enough wild areas like it's a more it's a nicer sort of like quilt work um, landscape of small farms, wild areas, healthy, you know, backyards, like people who aren't used, aren't spraying their lawns with, with pesticides, um, and, and backyard beekeepers that, that whole like quilt work, um, landscape works pretty well for both the bees and people who are growing food crops. So that could be a better system. Yeah. Yeah. You've written about so many different topics um and i read something recently about uh your work now trying to maybe be not so closely tied to food or being pigeonholed within the food writing um world um but yeah i guess if we want to speak a little bit about the i read the outside magazine article um drinking the jellyfish beer and the CRISPR kits that people are selling and all that sort of stuff. So I guess just kind of like how did, um, you know, specifically um, like working with the bee stuff and Apple things going into DNA and genetic sequencing and that sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, so it's all biology, basically. Like I'm always writing about biology one way or the other. But um, and uh, sustainability, how, how you keep this whole system going, like we've been talking about today, that's, that's always been part of the underlying interest. So once you once you're writing about food a lot and and looking at um, the problems with the system, it becomes one of the shocking things that you realize pretty quickly is that agriculture is an incredibly huge source of uh, global warming. They 
incredible contributor to greenhouse gases, probably as big as as cars are uh, worldwide. And um, and in terms of also like land use, it, agriculture is just a monster. It's probably a lower hanging fruit in terms of like, it's easier to make changes that could have a big impact with agriculture than it is to get everybody out of their cars or to force everybody into electric cars. Like that's a pretty big ask, but there are things you can do, behavior changes with the food system that can immediately have a giant impact. And the one that stands out for everybody basically is cows. The um, cows produce incredible amount of greenhouse gases. It's just their their nature, um, like the way they break down grasses and, and grains, and their you know they've got the four stomachs. They basically break it down, use bacteria that produce a ton of methane. So cows are constantly burping methane, which is a greenhouse gas that's like twenty times as bad as uh, carbon dioxide, actually. And they also, you have to just grow a tremendous number of crops, which uses fossil fuels, both for the fertilizer and for the, the, the machinery to feed a cow. It's really inefficient. Like you have to, it takes 26 calories of, of crops, like vegetable crops fed to a cow to produce one calorie of beef. So basically, if you could somehow figure out a way to get cows out of the system, you could immediately make a huge, huge impact on climate change. How do you do that? Well, that's not easy because beef tastes awesome. Yeah, right? or, or drastically reduce the amount of beef that people are eating. Or reduce the amount of beef, right. Um, yeah, get people to eat in a different style where they're not looking for a giant hunk of, of steak. And, but the other thing you can do is like the most beef is consumed in the form of ground beef, which is, which is an easier target. Like ground beef is just has a, you know, a basic beefy flavor. It's got a pretty simple texture. That one seems easier to tackle like you're not going to come up with something to replace a steak but there's a lot of veggie burgers out there that are not as good as ground beef but they're getting there so my interest in on the genetic front um, started with actually with burgers there's a couple companies in um, California sort of high-tech Silicon Valley companies that are kind of making the first super serious efforts to develop a veggie burger that will make beef eaters just as happy as as an actual beef burger first it was a well, beyond beyond meat was the first one yeah the beast burger which was okay that's the one i wrote about in outside um it was okay it wasn't there still tasted weird but then impossible foods came along a, a guy who's like a genius at stanford you know, um, with, with his incredible track record decided to devote himself to to basically taking burgers down and he's, he's had more success than anyone else. The Impossible Burger is now available um, on both coasts. You can, you can get it here in Boston, a few different places. And it's it's super close to um, to your basic, like your Safeway, like not a, a great burger, but your basic burger you would buy um, at, a, at, any, at a supermarket, basic ground beef. It, it's pretty competitive with that. Right. It, it it's not a veggie burger or anything. It's like, it's pretty close to actually like people make meatballs out of it. Yeah. People make, yeah. you know, very traditional looking burgers out of it that, you know, if you, you might not be able to tell that it's not beef. Yeah. If you're, not, if you're not thinking too, about it too closely, it, uh, it, it works totally well. Um, 
and the carbon footprint is way, way, way lower. But the way they do that is there's a little genetic engineering involved. They have to create, turns out that blood, like little traces of blood in ground beef are what, when cooked, are what give beef its classic flavor profile. So you need blood in your veggie burger. That was what's always missing from those other veggie burgers that taste more like, you know. So how do you, where do you get blood and keep it vegan? They use genetic engineering to take genes from, it turns out soybeans actually make tiny amounts of blood in them, hemoglobin. So they actually take the, um, the genes from soybeans that make hemoglobin and insert them into a yeast and then ferment the, like basically brew beer with the yeast. But while the beer, the yeast is doing its stuff, making alcohol, it's also making hemoglobin with these soybean genes that it has in it. So it's freaky. There's no actually, there's no like genetic engineered genes in the actual product because they're just taking the hemoglobin out of, they're like separating that from the process. But that was the first thing that made me realize that it was a lot easier to play around with genetics than than I'd known. And I think an interesting thing is that there's um, more applicable ways of using this science and understanding to, you know, make the world better, um, which I think is something that people, you know, kind of shy away from. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's what that's what brought me here because yeah, we I I I always. Hated genetic engineering because Mons- all I knew was Monsanto, right? Which created some of some pretty pretty terrible genetically engineered products like Roundup Ready soybeans uh, and Roundup Ready corn have been genetically engineered so that they can withstand uh, Roundup, which is Monsanto's um, weed killer. So those that allows farmers to spray their crops directly with Roundup, uh, and the only thing that can survive is these Roundup-ready crops. So every weed dies, but also other it kills the bacteria in the soil. It, it means like tremendous amounts of Roundup get get like used in the environment. It's uh, it's just a, like a bad move all around, and now it's led to all these uh, Roundup-resistant crop. Uh, weeds that have have evolved so it had it's backfired in a lot of ways people don't want to eat crops that have these uh, like engineered genes in them Uh, so it was public relations nightmare probably there probably aren't any direct health benefits from the crops there's no reason there there would be for the particular genes they put no no direct health issues from the genes that are in there but still it's just like they're bad ideas um and led me to just like assume that all genetic engineering was bad. But so then I started learning about these new new things coming along, where which are sort of much more finessed uses of the technology that actually could be really good. So that was why what brought me here to MIT was to uh, explore that stuff and see could it be good, and also like is there a way for people to accept it, or is it? too late that no one's ever going to accept any genetic engineering technology and how's how's it going like what's, <laughs> what's your feeling i guess i'm not sure anyone will ever accept it i think um really yeah i mean you know it's like there are certain people who will yeah but it's like people hear the word genetic engineering and that done that's the end of that conversation and i'm not sure they will ever be able to change that because in, in order to really understand why that can be a problem, but it might not be a problem on a case-by-case basis. 
you need to take a lot of time to really understand how genes work, period. That will definitely take away some of the fear of, of some of what they're doing, but it's, uh, it's not like a, a two-minute conversation thing. And what is, can you talk about, like, I read that you were looking into reviving extinct flower scents. Can you talk about this stuff or no? Yeah. Um, okay. So here, this is a crazy, there's this amazing company uh, here in Boston called Ginkgo Bioworks. They're out in the Seaport District. And they are some of the um, people doing the, the cutting edge work in this area. They're all, it was founded by a bunch of MIT graduates a few years ago. They engineer microbes, like they take yeast and um, E. coli, and are, they've gotten really good at putting different genes into those. And one of the first things they, they figured out how to do was um, take the gene, a gene from a rose that creates the rose scent. It produces the molecules that are responsible for the scent of a rose. Insert that into yeast. So that you know, when you when you brew your your beer or whatever, you, you basically put feed the, feed it sugar, and the yeast, just like when you're making beer or wine, eats the sugar, produces alcohol, but but it also on the side produces rose scent, but it's literally natural rose scent. It's a purely biological process. There's no chemicals involved. It's just. Uh, Instead of like the cells of a rose producing those molecules, it's the cells of a yeast that has the rose gene in it. So it's exact same metabolism, exact same product. It's just happening in a yeast instead of a rose cell. Uh, so they um, produce this natural rose oil for the uh, for the fragrance industry at a fraction of the cost. It turns out it makes it takes an insane number of roses. I see. Yeah, like the Chanel. Yeah. You've heard about. I heard about the Chanel farm exactly and how much it takes to make their number five signature scent or whatever yeah um, it's nuts like yeah flower flowers have so little of those aromatic oils in them the essential oils so it's like it's like something like i forget how many millions of roses it takes to make like one liter of rose oil but it's it's millions so they environmentally, found a way around that. yeah, they found a way around that. It makes it much cheaper um, and environmentally much better. Um, takes a lot of land to make that many roses. Right. Whether customers will accept it as uh, natural or not, like that's a, for more of a philosophical argument. But once they figured out how to do that, they realized. And so in the in the um, in the perfume industry, getting some of the, there's all these flowers that have great scents, but they're really rare, or they produce tiny amounts, so they're they're it's hard to get much. So those those are, these inaccessible flowers have always been a target for ginkgo. So as they're thinking about what what's really inaccessible, and they kind of realize like what's super duper inaccessible, flowers that have already gone extinct, because um, if you can get the DNA sequenced from you can get some some dead sample of a flower that no longer exists but you can still get the dna sequence from that flower and figure out which were the genes that um, made the smell of that flower same thing you take those make those genes now we can print dna right so you can print a gene literally on it it's like an inkjet printer you print that gene insert that gene into yeast and the yeast will produce whatever molecules that flower was producing. So even though no one, some of these flowers are extinct, no one knows what they smelled like. If you can figure out the right genes and put those into yeast, you can then start 
producing the, the scent of these flowers that have no longer exist. So that's that's this project that I've been working on with them. That and most application being fragrance industry or are there any other applications for any of this sort of stuff? For, yeah, so the media, this is more just like to show off what they can right. do. Yeah. Here's, here's, here's the cool stuff we can do. It's just for the cool factor. Right. So they, um, yeah, the idea is to make like a, uh, you know, a Jurassic Park perfume <laughs> with the scents of these extinct flowers. Cool. Um, and that's going to, it's going to, it's in, it'll be like a year before they have something. But it, it looks like it's going to work. Um, in terms of more useful applications, there are lots of, like producing molecules, the environmental footprint of some of these sort of rare scents is huge, actually. So if you can do it in a little, like, you know, 100-gallon fermenter, that's way better. At the same time, you're then taking away the livelihood of all the people in some part of the world that are doing that. So they, they're definitely aware that it's, uh, there's a lot going on. You have to look at the trade-offs. Um, it depends what your metrics are, you know. But then they're, they're getting into other stuff now. Like right now, the way the whole, like the way industrial agriculture works is you're growing your corn, synthetic fertilizer that, that um, you apply. Like farmers all use chemical fertilizer, pretty much. And again, huge, huge source of uh, greenhouse gases. But there are certain plants, like beans, like legumes, that fix their own nitrogen. Basically, what you're adding is nitrogen. Um, so beans have always known how to draw nitrogen out of the air and basically create their own fertilizer. But they're the only plants that do that, the legumes. So. Um, there's a few people working on what this would be like the home run is if you can take corn, engineer corn, give it the, the, the little system that beans use, make its own fertilizer, wipe out the entire chemical fertilizer industry basically, and just have the plants all do it themselves. That that would be like a game changer. Yeah. So there's things like that that are That's like how shots. this technology is connected through potential future. Like it's basically the same similar processes of finding these DNA sequences of extinct flowers versus finding what it is in a legume and then inserting that into right. a corn. What happens is basically you stop, you stop thinking about a, an organism, a species as like a set thing. You, you start thinking about it as like a collection of genes that work together to do all these different things. Like every gene does one thing. Um, it's like a tool, right? Like, so an organism is like, you know, you're a garage with all these tools in it. And those are like the gene, those are the tools that are available. So suddenly you can give it, a, maybe it doesn't have like a power drill. So you give it a power drill and it can do this other thing that it couldn't do before. So when you start thinking about that, it gets really weird. Um, but you can also start thinking about like, pulling together new sets of tools to do specific things that couldn't be done before. And your overall feeling on the project is that a lot of this stuff just kind of won't be accepted, period. Yeah, I think people, I think people are so, they don't think of organisms as collections of tools, right? right. Yeah. They think of like it as a sacred um, thing that's just whole in and, in and of itself that you don't really break down into parts. So, and that's totally legit, a legitimate way to view the world. So, it's like these different worldviews that are like quite possibly incompatible. 
you know, and need to be respected. Like, there's no way the the genetic engineers need to respect the belief systems of people who have pretty good reasons, philosophical, emotional, whatever, for like keeping the world the way it is. You know. Wow, that sounds like a lot. Of, <laughs> that sounds like a lot of work. I I love your. Um, just kind of the the scope and trajectory of the stuff that you've worked on for sure has been uh, interesting. I would say at the very like your original starting off with writing a book instead of the like traditional thing, and now how it's led you into this whole world is just really really interesting. Um, and I guess maybe like reflecting on all of these different pieces that have gotten you to be working on what got you um, to MIT. Um, what are some like pivotal moments maybe that have stuck out for you and being like aha moments or like game changing things or or proud moments that you've had of understanding and sharing and. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. Um, so this funny arc, like basically it's all about ways to see the world, to see like the amazingness of the world, right? So food is, has been a great way to do that and like, Getting into genetics is a great way to do that. Like once you understand biology, how it works, it's like mind blowing. And not just that, but ways to create. You know, like our, what kind of world are we creating? That is, uh, is there a, is there a world that a potential world out there that works really well? You know, um, and it seems like there's all these like little hints that we could create that world, like would form this really good world. We tend to like see like these really like dark dystopian futures but it does seem like there's all these things in place like this this whole sustainable food movement that could actually point toward a pretty well working world so I, I think that's kind of been the arc is seeing all these little pieces of the puzzle that no, wouldn't normally fit together like the people who are into our, to organic agriculture and the people who are into genetic engineering generally hate each other right but they're actually trying to address some of the same issues in very different ways so i think so like my role is always to try to like see the patterns and connections between that and do it in a way that's not um sort of like aggressively us versus them because almost everything breaks down to us versus them it's like something about the the like human mind that wants to see enemies out there um it's like sports right like the yankees are evil yeah until you hire that guy you know on your team and then they're great so yeah so sort of like trying to break through that uh that dichotomy well, through your writing, I think you definitely achieve that for sure. And you, you through like a lot of the features, stories and stuff, find ways to integrate, you know, comedy and like a connectivity with people talking about these kind of like broader subjects, which um, is really awesome to read. For sure. We all, stories are, are what are fun, narratives, right? And we all learn through narratives, or we used to learn through narratives. And- yeah. That's still the best way, often. Yeah. So uh, we spoke earlier a little bit, and I'm definitely interested in um, your career as a writer and all of those things that make up the the journey that's gotten you to where you are. Um, So I was interested in kind of like the state of things now as well as this kind of like good and bad and us and them thing of of how long-form journalism has kind of started to 
go through some pretty big shifts, you know, like like this stuff that's happening now with me and you and also with um, content being released online with, you know, it just changes the way that the game has been played um, on such a crazy level. Um, yeah, 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 it's weird. There's like this, um, there's this two-tier system right now where it is just a holdover from the old days where if something is in print, which really it, it shouldn't make a difference anymore, like in terms of eyeballs, print has no advantage over online. In fact, it probably has a disadvantage. Um, but stuff that's in print is still valued at a different level versus stuff that's online. We, just because we're all trained to like think that everything online should be insanely cheap, right? And the other thing is now, like, there's so much content out there, right? So that's always going to be kind of a race to the bottom. It's a, it's a buyer's market, like, for content where there's so much good stuff that so no one has to pay more than that in a way mm-hmm. uh, so far. Like, the, the print magazines that still want to have the best stuff will, are still paying for it. But we'll see how long that lasts because there's never been more great content out there than right now because all the things you talked about, the there's so many different avenues that have opened up for doing it and there's so many people willing to do it. So it's great. So in a way, I don't think there's, like everyone worries about the death of journalism. It could be the death of professional journalism, but I, in a way, it doesn't matter. Like there will all, there, there's going to be more great stuff out there to read than there's ever been read listen to whatever the format is um would those be professionals doing it probably not you know because it'll be more like three hundred dollars for an eight like which no one can make a living doing that so uh it's not a problem except for people who want to be professional journalists (laughs) for me um you know i've always been uh, very intrigued with writing and and huge cookbook food literature and regular literature like had I not gone to school for culinary arts I was trying to go for literature um, but didn't get into the schools blah 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 and I've since been cooking um, a lot for the last like 12 years um, so now starting to get into this stuff what is some advice um, that you um, would give to me as as trying to develop writing more valuable to me and other people looking at it, long form content, that sort of stuff, um, books or you know different different ways of. I always look for good narratives. Like there's a lot of like, sort of like bad food writing out there that is like restaurant review. It's like everybody wants to be Pete Wells or whatever. Right. Um, and to me, that stuff is has, is of limited interest. Like you you like I always look for the story like the person who's got the interesting story to tell that's key like there's no replacement for that like if you get really a really good story most of your work is done you know just tell tell that straight up Uh, and the thing that people don't think enough about is withholding of information with that stuff like you want to find the great story but you don't want to give away the good stuff right up front. People give away the good stuff up front way too often. It's like, it, that's the newspaper style, like don't bury the lead, they always say. In other words, the big reveal is is the first few sentences of a newspaper story every every time. Um, and then they tell how, like, the, the background. But, you, I, like, for me, the model, of all writing, the model is is a mystery story, basically. Mm. Like, who done it? You, you, you set it up, you, you make people want to know who did it, but then you're not going to tell them until the end. 
and maybe you're gonna, there are going to be a few red herrings around the way, a few clues. So obviously, you don't usually have a literal mystery, but you have a question that you're um, driving toward. So you want to you want to like plant the question in people's mind up front, and then not really answer it till near the end. And the question can be like anything. It can be like, is this chef going to succeed? You know, it can be, why does this chocolate taste so good? Um, it can be anything that the breeder's going to want to know. But you got to make, but you you, you got to like not <laughs> not satisfy the reader's desire too early. <laughs> so that's you, you create you create you, you create a natural drive. Yeah. Um, so when you come up with, or when you're writing, coming up with feature stories or your books and stuff, they you tend to like sketch out that narrative and then build around that like with yeah. the actual writing yeah um, definitely interesting so you'll have like a sketch you know like a larger picture thing like web or whatever it is and then fill in all the pieces right to make that narrative told in the way that you want to but not a web like sometimes I think people have the wrong like especially if it's a book like they think of it like a house like they're looking down at a house and they're like doing the architecture yeah. but it's more like a fun house it's always linear like text is always linear so it's like they're gonna go to this room and they're gonna see this and then that they're gonna go to this room and they're gonna see this so it's more like chronological totally yeah and even if it's not chronological it's still a linear process it's one thing after the other for right. the uh for the reader yeah. so it's how you string it's like i want them to have this experience and then this experience and then this experience yeah. so yeah i stay away from models that are non-linear you know mm -hmm. Interesting. Thank you. Very. That's really awesome insight for sure. Um, okay, so you mentioned that you like to cook mm -hmm. earlier. Uh, so the last few questions before we wrap up are: uh, What is the last? This isn't exactly what you like to cook, but we'll get there. Um, what's the last memorable thing that someone else cooked for you? Ah, interesting question. Um, well, I was just at a friend's house for. Uh, Greek Easter, Greek Orthodox Easter, uh, a few weeks ago. So we had like the classics. He made his own taro masala, which was really good for starters. Um, and then it was it was you know like a, a lamb stew that was. Fantastic. What is a memorable food experience or memory from growing up? I guess you already shared one, but maybe another one with the oysters in the South. But I can tell you about the best the best thing I ever ate. Okay. That, yeah, that'll work. <laughs> this is funny though. Uh, so by when I was like uh, thirteen, my brother was eleven. We, had, we our older half brother had a bar in Vermont, like a roadside bar, um, and it had like a bunch of pool tables and um, foosball tables and pinball machines in it. So one day, like I forget where our parents were going, but they they dropped us off at the bar. The bar was closed. They, they let us just go to the bar to, to play pinball and, and uh, pool and stuff. And um, so we were there like all, all afternoon playing that stuff. And they were like, don't touch the alcohol, which we didn't. We just, but we went, went crazy with like, you know, the Coke. Yeah, the gun, the gun. soda gun. We, 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 we did bad things with the soda gun, um, just in terms of the amount of soda we drank. Yeah. But anyway, um, Somehow, like everyone miscommunicated and forgot that we were there, so they like we were just like stuck there for hours. And of course, this was back in the day; there were no phones, right? right? So everybody, I think they thought maybe we'd gone to our old half brother's house or something. But 
we were forgotten. Um, through the night, we're just like drinking Coke and playing pinball machines and getting hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. And then finally, at like 11 p.m. or something, somebody realized like that we weren't home and we were nowhere. So like our parents came and picked us up and brought us home. And I remember, for whatever reason, we were starving, like seriously, like hadn't eaten since breakfast. I just remember there were like these frozen green beans like uh, that somebody like made right away and handed to us. And that was the best thing I'd ever eaten was those frozen green beans <laughs> with nothing on them. Because it was like the only food available. Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> yeah. So hunger is the best sauce is the, is the moral of that story. Oh, man. Sometimes right. I try to remember like to let myself get really hungry before I eat. Yeah. Because it makes all the difference. Yeah. What's the last memorable thing that, or proud thing that you have cooked for other people or just yourself? I, uh, I was doing a story on this, uh, these fishermen up in Maine who only do, they, everything is rod and reel. They're commercial, but everything is rod and reel. They catch uh, mostly pollock, which is thought of as a lesser fish because it's never been treated right. But everyone, they, they pull it up and they bleed it instantly and put it in an ice brine to preserve the flesh. And so it gets this firm white flesh, like what you see on a cod normally, and spectacular. Um, so a friend of mine, I got brought a bunch of fish back. I went fishing with them. It's like an 18-hour day out on the water. Yeah. Um, brought them. Then they only sell whole fish. They will not sell fillets. So they will only work with chefs who will are willing to buy whole fish. So I got a bunch of these whole um, Pollock and um, a friend of mine. We just grilled them with. Uh, with um, you know all this fat, all these herbs stuffed into the cavity, and and orange and lemon slices stuck stuffed in garlic and stuffed in the cavity, and it was uh, that was the best thing I've eaten recently. Yeah, yeah. if you're into fish, yeah. you should get a hold of some of these. Yeah, nice. That was pretty tasty. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Um, well, Rowan, thank you very much for taking the time and uh, coming to meet. Um, you have anything coming up or any? Anything happening that you want to try and share or that you're excited about to share with people? Um, um, no, I'm out, you know, I'm out of here in a few weeks. So. Yeah. I will have a, there's a big, uh, my, a big story on gene drives, which are a really scary type of genetic engineering uh, coming out in Pacific Standard in a few days. That's probably one to look for. All right. So we'll keep our eyes out for Pacific Standard and pick up a copy yeah. and read the article. Prepare to be scared. Uh. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Evan.